Hello, and welcome to another episode of Engage with Eagle Forum. I'm Glenn McKay, a board member of Eagle Forum, and I'm joined by our political director, Tabitha Walter. Hi. And our executive director, Kirsten Hasler. Hello. So while there's usually one or two of us as hosts, all three of us are here this week because of the gravity of the issues that we're going to be discussing. As we mentioned in a previous episode, we have joined all of you in mourning the deaths and the destruction over the past few months. And like many of you, we are taking time to remember history, to identify problems, and to seek potential solutions. That's right. And the reality is that our nation has transformed itself and targeted racism and injustice in many ways over the last 150 years, from the abolition of slavery to the Civil Rights Act to anti-discrimination laws and affirmative action. Policymakers have taken actions to try to reconcile racial injustice, yet we continue to see racial inequities and disparities. The battles of the past should only serve to propel us forward and remind us that government policies and reform cannot change the hearts and minds of people. And in many ways, government solutions to those disparities have only hurt the very communities it intended to help. But we are committed to targeting root causes and identifying solutions that you can engage on. While we certainly do not have all the answers, we have taken significant time to read, discuss, and listen. To start, we know that strong families are the essential building block of a free and moral society. So we will begin our discussion with a timely focus on an irreplaceable part of that building block, a father. Today, we want to celebrate fathers and draw attention to the seismic role fathers play in our society. So joining us is DJ Jordan. DJ was born and raised in Virginia by his parents who escaped poverty through family commitment, education, entrepreneurship, and hard work. While playing college football, DJ earned two bachelor's degrees in communication and sports management from, from Liberty University, and then a master's in public management from the Johns Hopkins University. He has a breadth of communications experience, beginning with broadcast journalism for CNN and Fox News, and then moving over to Capitol Hill, where he served as press secretary for Congressman Adderholt from Alabama, then comms director for the House Small Business Committee, and then as communications director for Senator James Langford of Oklahoma. And at that time, DJ was the only African-American communications director on either side of the aisle in the U.S. Senate. DJ now works for a PR firm in Alexandria, Virginia, and in 2019, narrowly lost a race for the Virginia House of Delegates. DJ has also served in a variety of volunteer roles that we'll cover throughout our conversation. But most importantly, DJ is husband to Gloria, and they are foster and adoptive parents and have four children. Welcome, DJ, and happy Father's Day week. It's great to be on the podcast. This uh, is an exciting time. Father's Day, I believe, should be Father's Week. So I'm excited <laughs> that you guys are celebrating it uh, for seven days. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, will you just start by giving us a little more background on you and your family? Sure. Um, I have a really unique story. Um, I'm very, very blessed. Uh, I was born to a 17-year-old teenage girl who dropped out of school to give birth to me. And I tell people all the time, if you hear a story start that way, you often assume that that child may end up as just another statistic or repeating the same cycle of poverty. Um, but God had a different plan for me. And uh, I really credit my father. 
with um, a lot that's happened in my life and the opportunities that I've had and his commitment to several very, very key principles and values. Uh, at the time, um, when I was born, he was 20 years old and he actually uh, gained an academic scholarship. My mom and dad both grew up in poverty and they committed uh, in their late teens to really change uh, not only their life, but generations to come after them. And so my father was able to get an academic scholarship um, and, and really the rest is history. He brought my mother and me to college while he was going to school full-time and working. And uh, he got a successful job out of um, after college. And uh, he went on to, um, to have a, a great career. He worked at IBM. Uh, he was a small business owner at time. And uh, they went on to have uh, five more children. So I was the oldest of six. Uh, had a big family. And we all are basically living uh, what many people know as the American dream, mm -hmm. that the condition of your birth does not automatically determine the outcome of your life. Mm -hmm. And really my father's commitment to stable families and you know responsible fatherhood, uh, also faith. My father also gave his life to the Lord shortly after I was born. So I grew up in a Christian home. And then um, education. Education was really a pathway out of poverty for him. And because of his dedication to that, and hard work, he was able to change things. So I grew up in the Hampton Roads, Virginia area, uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia area, and uh, really uh, had a really great uh, upbringing. I'm very blessed uh, to have a mom and dad who are actually um, still married to this day. Uh, they've been married for 43 years, something like that. Wow. And all of my brothers and sisters, we have had a tremendous amount of opportunities. You know, I've, I've gone to college, got to play college football, went to grad school, uh, got to work on Capitol Hill uh, and some pretty amazing places. And, uh, and now I'm a vice president uh, at a company here in Northern Virginia. That's great. So such an inspiring story. I, I love so many of the things you said there. Um, I actually texted your wife, you know, to find out the, the real story about who you are. Uh -oh. And this is, <laughs> but listen, this is what she said about you. I don't want to read this. She said, DJ, DJ Jordan is actively engaged in his children's lives. Mm. He studies what makes all four wildly different kids uniquely them and then enters into their world. As a strong black man in America, he builds them up and specifically praises their accomplishments, both large and small. He lives a life of integrity, continually doing what he says he's going to do. And their precious hearts can safely trust in him. DJ is a gentle, unsung African-American hero. As an engaged father, he shows our kids that true greatness is not in titles and wealth, but to know and follow God, love and protect your family, and physically care for vulnerable people around you. As a fierce advocate for justice, he gives a megaphone to the marginalized because fighting for them is the right thing to do for humanity. He is precisely the kind of father I would want every kid to have, and I'm so very grateful to God that my kids, Trey, who's age 18, Tyson, age 14, Taylor, age 12, and Tori, age 8, get to call him their dad. Wow, DJ. <laughs> gonna make oh me tear my. up oh, i know you're trying to make me cry here <laughs> no, I know. oh my lord it's all over now right that is so That's sweet so talk to us about that i mean what you you've mentioned your dad you've mentioned the legacy of faith talk to us about those influences and what has really inspired you to live and father in this way well i kind of you know and the beneficiary of a, a great story and uh those of us who are christians people of faith 
you know, this was the plan for people to thrive and that's in families. And we all see what happens oftentimes with some of the outcomes of children and young people and adults who don't get that opportunity to have a stable, strong family. Right. And uh, I, I was able to live it. I was able to see it firsthand. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. My, my wife and I talk about this all the time. And uh, she unfortunately did not have that same opportunity, a father. Um, she had a father who uh, actually left their family and was not engaged. And so, um, you know, I know when she writes that, um, there's a lot of her own story in that as well, because she knows the value of having uh, an engaged father. That's why Father's Day is so important. And um, I just love the fact that my dad wasn't perfect, but he, he tried so hard to love each and every one of us. And he was always commitment. I never once doubted my father's commitment and love mm. for me. And I know my brothers and sisters are the same way and that's priceless. And I didn't really realize how great it was until really I got into college and got to meet so many other people who didn't have the same experience. And I saw the, the hole that they had in their heart and, um, some of the other uh, consequences that come from not having a stable father. So um, I'm extremely blessed. And thanks for reading that and asking my, uh, asking my wife that. I'll try to not cry for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, you know, it's very clear that your father left such an impact on you and that his legacy is being shown through you um, to your children now. So when we were looking at the impact that fathers can have on their children, research shows that early positive father involvement leads to greater success. In fact, when compared to those who do not feel close to their father, children who feel a closeness to their father are twice as likely to enter college or find stable employment after high school, 75% are less likely to have a teen birth, 80% are less likely to spend time in jail, and half as likely to experience multiple depression symptoms. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's an identity and a confidence that comes from relationship with one's father. So obviously fatherhood is an extremely important issue for you. So can you add to this idea that absent fathers are a root cause of the social problems that we see today? I mean, the statistics don't lie. They really tell the story themselves. Over and over, you see what happens when uh, fathers are not in communities and when they're not in homes. Um, I served on the State Board of Social Services, and one of my colleagues on the State Board, I won't tell her name because I don't want to get her in trouble, she actually managed a, uh, a public assistant housing project in, in, an, urban, in an urban area. And she would actually, um, th by the way, there's, there's a lot of laws on the book that don't allow um, felons or returning citizens or people like that to actually rent the properties on many of the government assistance HUD facilities um, and apartments across America. But her and her uh, housing manager, the leasing manager, they actually would welcome fathers who were coming out of prison or maybe who had a record, they would welcome them and living with their families in the apartment complex because they knew how important it was to the children and to the community, the mm -hmm. safety of the community, uh, and, and so many people impacted by having those fathers and male role models uh, in the community. And sadly, I think many of our public policy at times uh, forgets that. Uh, there are incentives in many of our 
uh, laws, especially in welfare laws, that um, it seemed to incentivize or at least benefit those who don't uh, get married or those uh, who don't have a committed uh, relationship with their children in their home. Uh, and that, and that, that's a problem. But I mean, the statistics don't lie. I mean, a, a child who grows up without a father is four times more likely to live in poverty. Yeah. And when you look at the racial disparities in America, uh, fatherhood is a part of that. When you look at uh, children of color um, and various minority groups, you will see uh, that for Hispanic and especially African American, the, the rate of fatherlessness is a crisis. It is a crisis. Um, uh, most, uh, I think most children in America right now, about 40%, not most, I'm sorry, 40% of all children in America right now are born into a home without an engaged father. These were statistics from about five or six years ago. That's 40%. But for the African-American community, it is as large as 70% of our children are born into households without a father. So if you look at those statistics and then you look at the rate of fatherlessness, there is a connection. There is a connection that it's important for uh, all of our leaders, all of our families across America to start talking about a little bit more because that's going to be part of the solution in the long term, I believe. Yeah, those, those numbers that you mentioned are staggering. Mm -hmm. You have prioritized being a father in various ways. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of a stable family and the steps that you have taken to provide that for your children and your wife? Yeah, stable families are, are so important. They're the, the, the bedrock of our society when you think about it. I think our government is only gonna be, our federal government is only gonna be as strong as our states. Mm -hmm. Our state governments are only as strong as our cities and our communities. Our mm -hmm. communities are only as strong as the families that are in those communities. And so it starts uh, with the actual family and that bedrock is so important. And so I've tried to uh, remain committed to my children uh, in a couple of ways. Um, first of all, uh, loving their mother and respecting her and showing her what that looks like, uh, because it's easier to say it. Um, and oftentimes people learn a little bit more by actually seeing it. And so mm -hmm. number one, I do that. Number two is um, I constantly uh, tell them that I love them and I figure out what their love language is. Uh, many of us have know the five love language book. And children can sometimes be all over the place, but once I get a good idea of what their love language is, I try to actually um, do that on a regular basis so that they know that their father loves them and he's committed to them. I actually try to do, um, I've tried to do uh, dates with my kids over time um, and try to spend time with them uh, just uniquely with them. And then uh, of course the, the provision is, um, I think what most men think about when they think of fatherhood, of course, it's more than provision, but uh, I want to make sure that my children have what they need to succeed okay. in life. And that's from everything from having a roof over the top of their head to um, uh, education wise, engaging them in education and learning and even Bible study and family devotions and all that stuff. I want to ask a follow-up question that may be a little personal, but I was just thinking, you know, you've clearly seen a lot of success in your life and you're, you credit your father for that. You credit, credit this legacy of faith, but were there some things that you focused on when you were a teenager, when you were in college so that you didn't become just another statistic, like you mentioned before, what, what, how did you challenge yourself or what, what things did you think about or focus on? What did that look like? Um, I have to tell you when I was a teenager, I, 
wasn't that intentional, believe it or not. You know, I, I, I grew up in a culture where it was expected. I grew up in a household where um, positive growth and success and intentionality, all of that stuff was expected. My parents constantly um, preached, uh, not preached, but, you know, it sounded like preaching at the time or lecturing mm-hmm. at the time, but they constantly told me that um, I am a success. I am going to do things. God has a plan for me. I'm going to be successful. And so it became ingrained into who I am. And so, you know, college isn't for everyone, but for me, you know, looking at my career, looking at uh, my life as an adult uh, was always something that I planned towards and expected. And that is what really kept me probably on the straight and narrow um, because my, my parents gave a model and then they also expected the, the same from me in a very positive way. You know, uh, the power of life and death is in words and they constantly showered me with very empowering words to be able to succeed long-term. I love that. It, it goes back to the point that parental involvement is essential. No question. You cannot replace that. So thanks for, thanks for answering that. But I was, as we're mentioning the statistics, um, I think back to some backlash that Don Lemon on CNN, he received several years ago when he was talking about these statistics. He said something about um, more than 72% of children in the African-American community are born out of wedlock. And then he said that means absent fathers. And the studies show that that lack of a male role model is an express train right to prison. And the cycle continues. Why do you think there was so much negative response really from the liberals to his statement? And can you just talk a little bit more about his claim, that express train that he mentions? Right. I think uh, the backlash that he experienced is similar to the backlash that other uh, leaders, black and white, and have, have brought, brought up. And I think it's a reflection of our culture. Uh, it's a reflection of relativism. It's a reflection of people really don't want to be um, challenged in any way. People want to do what they want to do and when they want to do it. And I think that's a, a sad trend in our culture, but unfortunately it is. Um, Don Lemon was exactly right. Um, there's been other leaders that have used those same statistic and they've gotten backlash as well. I point to uh, President Barack Obama and a Father's Day speech in Chicago in 2008 when he was a candidate. In my opinion, I don't agree with all of his policies, but in my opinion, that speech was the best speech that he ever gave. And it was on fatherhood. It was on the impact of fathers on communities across America. And at the time, he was focusing really on the African-American community. Um, I even think recently, last year, Jay-Z, who was a rapper, uh, made the comment, and he got a huge back, backlash. I think it was last fall. Uh, he made the comment that he, um, you know, his, his absent fatherlessness situation impacted him tremendously and made him an angry young boy uh, mm-hmm. growing up and even into his teenage years. And he said that he believes that absent fatherhood actually plays a part in uh, the criminal justice issues that we have to today, where a lot of young boys and, and a lot of teenagers have not been taught how to respect authority uh, and, and uh, deal with authority. Many of them see a teacher, a principal, a police uh, officer, or any type of a, someone that tries to exert authority, um, they have an automatic reaction of anger and bitterness. Mm-hmm. Basically like, you're not my father, so don't tell me what to do. In fact, my father is, isn't even in my life. 
and Jay-Z said that, and he got a huge backlash, but um, he, he was absolutely right. I think, and I know in the African-American community, there's a heated discussion about these very things. And thankfully, a lot of pastors and a lot of leaders are stepping up to uh, continue this message. But um, I see, you know, primarily in a very, very progressive, secular um, wing, and now with social media, everybody's got a voice. Right. They're pretty loud as well and push, trying to push back on that. And I'm hopeful that uh, it won't win the day. But yes, uh, it leads to uh, issues with criminal justice. Uh, there's, no deba- no, there's no doubt in my mind about that. Um, the statistics kind of speak for themselves as well. People, uh, young people who don't have an engaged father are more likely to have an issue with juvenile uh, detention system or with um, uh, the, the prison system. And we actually see this in grade school as well. If you go back to elementary school, middle school, and so on and so on, uh, you will see some of the behavioral issues are coming from children who do not have fathers or a stable home. So uh, there's no doubt that there's a connection there. Yeah, absolutely. I, you mentioned the Obama speech, and that's something that we looked over ourselves recently. Um, and with your response to that, um, as as well as the other celebrities taking part in these uh, efforts to reconcile race, racial injustice, and fatherhood being one of them, what initiatives for fatherhood have you seen affect change? Uh, Yeah, um, speaking of uh, President Obama, at the end of his second term, he launched a My Brother's Keeper initiative, which was a bipartisan effort that really engaged local community nonprofits and charities and churches to really uh, focus on many of these boys and teenagers that don't have fatherhoods, to encourage people to mentor uh, these young people. And I have personally seen a ton of success through that in my local community, and the data also bears it out. Um, I'm a part of a fatherhood initiative where I live uh, in Prince William County, uh, Prince William Fatherhood Initiative. Uh, They do various fatherhood events throughout the year, And they also work with some fraternities and other organizations that also provide mentorships to uh, young boys and men and young teenagers who who don't have an engaged father. And uh, and they work. I've seen, um, you know, lots and lots of success stories. Another piece of the programming with a lot of fatherhood initiatives is uh, helping uh, young men who are already fathers not repeat that same cycle. And oftentimes they could be married to the mother of their child. They may not be. It may be co-parenting situation. And many of these fatherhood initiatives uh, actually have uh, curriculum and teaching uh, and de-escalation techniques that they teach a lot of these men um, about maintaining a relationship with their father's mother or their children's mother, but also, um, you know, the importance of how the, it's, how important it is for them to spend time with their children and what that looks like if you're actually not living with the child. So a lot of these programs absolutely work. I'm really, really proud of the Pregnancy Resource Center movement mm-hmm. because many of them across the countries have slowly implemented fatherhood programs into what they are doing. Mm-hmm. They're walking alongside uh, women who are experiencing unplanned pregnancies, but they realize, you know, they already knew that, but they realized that um, the the young person is more likely going to choose life, first of all, if the father is supportive. And then also, after, if they make that decision to choose life, uh, you want to have 
um, a successful situation for that young child to have a father present in the life. And so there are men that engage and volunteer with many of these pregnancy resource centers to also walk alongside the fathers. That's great. Yeah, and given the frequency with which we've heard all this data, there's a lot of prejudice and assumptions out there when it comes to Black fathers. But when we hear statistics, we should also remember that there are 2.5 million Black fathers still living with their children, compared to the 1.7 million Black fathers who do not. But this issue is deeper than race alone. From 1960 to 2010, the percentage of white women in the bottom 30% of income earners were single and raising minor children, and it quadrupled. You have such unique understanding of the media, the government, and the societal implications of strong families. So how should we as a society be responding? Uh, that's great. Um, I'm glad you point that out. I think as a society, it's important for the media also to help to change stereotypes. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I've seen that slowly in some areas of the media, uh, especially with uh, black filmmakers and, and things like that and sitcoms. Um, I know uh, the show Blackish, I don't agree with everything on that show, but they, they've got a stable family and a father who's very committed. It may, not, it may look a little different the way that he engages and bonds with his children, but they have a stable family. And we've seen other shows pop up that, that show that as well, which I'm, I'm glad uh, to see. Uh, yesterday, uh, my good friend, Benjamin Watson, who is a was an NFL player and a speaker at the March for Life about four years ago. Yesterday, he uh, actually released a video that um, I participated in for Father's Day. And it basically was um, a, a number of fathers on there that were talking about what it means to be a father to us. And one of the reasons he did that is, is exactly for the perception reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, most of us were black fathers who are very, very proud of our responsibility as leaders in our home and fathers to our children. And I think uh, it's important for um, the pro-life movement, for the conservative movement, for people of faith as well to play a part in that, um, to really showcase and uh, change the perceptions of what many black men are doing in their communities. And I think uh, all of us can sometimes stereotype um, all of us, you know, no matter what your, your color is, no matter what your race is, no matter what your ethnicity, we can make stereotypes based on what we automatically see right away. And you'd be surprised that some of the men who may not have a jacket on like myself, they may not look clean cut or whatever, um, and they may uh, look like, um, you know, someone else who is from a different part of town, but they can be very engaged fathers, very, very engaged fathers. Um, it just may look a little different. It may look a, a little different than your average suburban, you know, uh, clean cut professional. And so I think it's important for all of us to to really realize that and acknowledge it. That's so good. Um, I think it was Frederick Douglass that said, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. And so all of these things you're talking about are so important. And with this podcast, we really try every week to bring this back down to the personal level for our listeners um, so that they can be engaged on these issues. And you 
personally, you and your wife, you've fostered, you've adopted, you've served your community and state in so many ways from serving as a, a youth football coach to serving, as you mentioned, a term on the Virginia State Board of Social Services. And you even serve on a board, uh, a nonprofit board that, that tries to, is seeking to end the crisis for children in foster care. So tell us about all of that. You know, why have you chosen to serve in those capacities? And do you have any encouragement and ideas for our listeners who want to be involved in their cities and their states? Yeah, I think um, God really has uh, challenged me to to get really involved in the community to to try to uh, to love on people, to care for people, but also to talk about these things uh, that I'm passionate about and you you guys are passionate about uh, because they actually help the community. They actually work. These policies, these ideas, these values of stable families and responsible fatherhood, they actually work. And I think um, I would love to see more and more communities embrace that on a local level. And uh, the reason why my wife and I got involved in foster care um, is because uh, around the time, about 10 years ago, I think it was, uh, we started to have conversations uh, just about um, what we were doing in the pro-life community. We were encouraging uh, women and men to uh, carry the full term of their child to to keep the child or or to consider adoption and or, or whatever, and you know we we started to ask ourselves the question: We're encouraging so many people to adopt or at least to consider adoption. You know why don't we look at you know just inquire about it to see if you know God may be calling us to be part of that solution as well. And we did a lot of research, and over the period of a couple of months the conversation switched dramatically to should we do it, but how can we not be part of this particular solution, especially when we saw the need and the crisis of foster care in America. Um, and we always thought of adoption as, you know, something that maybe an unplanned pregnancy was the result of, or we, all, uh, we, all, we often thought about it in regards to uh, overseas adoption and international adoption. Um, and those things are worthy, absolutely, but we had no idea the number of children who needed families in our own state, in our own communities. Um, we have, we really do have a foster care crisis in America. Mm -hmm. You know, nationwide, there are over 400,000 kids in the foster care system right now. Uh, in many states, uh, the numbers are pretty drastic. In Virginia, where I live, uh, there's about 6,000 kids in the foster care system. Uh, roughly anywhere between 10 to 30 percent of the children in foster care system in various states um, are in need of actual adoptive homes right then. That means that the, parent, the parents' um, rights have been terminated for one reason or the other, oftentimes neglect or abuse, but um, they need homes right now. And so the, we're talking about children who are four years old, eight years old, 12 years old, and they're in a foster care system or they may be in a home situation. Um, and I would love, love to see more and more uh, people of faith, uh, more people in general, especially if you already have a stable family and God has blessed you with room uh, in your home to just think about it, to consider it. Um, I don't think everybody's been called to adopt or foster. It's not for everybody. Um, but I do think uh, people who are Christians, I think the church in general has been uh, challenged to play a role, just to play a role. Uh, in some way, whether that's supporting or encouraging other people um, or um, or other ways like that. So um, that's why we got involved and uh, we have fostered several child, several children 
Um, one of our children now is adopted from foster care. And we also keep in contact a lot with a lot of other uh, children who have actually aged out of the foster care system. Um, during this pandemic, this COVID pandemic, a lot of people have suffered with the isolation and depression that's come along with it. One of our mentees, um, a young lady who uh, aged out of the foster care system, she does not have a, a stable family. And so we actually, uh, she actually came and lived with us for about three weeks because she was really struggling you know, with the, the isolation and things like that. And so, um, you know, you never grow out of needing a family. And uh, we all know that. We know the importance of family. And that's just another way that people who are listening might um, be interested in looking into serving. I loved what you said. Um, really, it's a call to churches. I, there's an initiative, I think it's called the 111 Project. And their basic premise is that if one family from every church in America adopted one child out of the foster care system, exactly, it would completely eradicate the foster care system in America. And, you know, this, our faith calls us to this in a variety of ways. I won't start listing off the verses, but you know, it's not that God hasn't made a way, a planned a way for these children. It's that his people aren't answering that call. Mm. But it's definitely something we need to be praying for through as, as, as Christians. And we're all called to be a part of it in one way or another. So that may not mean, like you said, that you're bringing children into your home. It may mean that you're serving another family who's doing that, that you're helping financially with families who are trying to do that. You know, there's a variety of ways that you can be involved, but the, the, the idea is that you have to be involved in some, in one way or another, or you really have to question what you believe in. Right. Amen. Preach Glenn. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I don't mean to, there is no condemnation. I just, I think this is something that the church really needs to, to think through, but I digress. And, and, Tabitha, and I'll, say that I'll also add that many of us uh, are pro-life within the church or within the conservative movement. And I think it's really important for us to evaluate what does it mean to be pro-life? Okay. Mm -hmm. If we're going to be pro-life, if we're going to walk alongside and, and, and encourage solutions, uh, we got to be part of the solution as well. There is a difference between being pro-life and pro-birth. Mm. And God has called, the Bible says that God has called to give us abundant life, mm -hmm. not just birth. So we need to be a part of creating that for God's precious human lives, no matter if they are in the womb or out of the womb. And part of that is the children that are languishing right now in our foster care system without a stable, loving family. Love that. Yeah. I want to press into this just a little bit more. Um, how did you get your feet wet uh, by getting into being a foster parent in adoption? Uh, yeah, we started with uh, attending a conference. Uh, actually, it wasn't a conference. It was the church that we were attending at, at the time. Uh, uh, basically observed something called an Orphan Sunday. And this is an initiative of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. If you don't know what it is, Google it, Christian Alliance for Orphans. And uh, it, normally the first Sunday in November, they ask churches all across, not just America, but the world, to uh, devote time to pray for vulnerable children who don't have families, pray for orphans, and pray for foster children. And oftentimes churches will do uh, additional things on top of that, like they'll hold a form you know, or they'll do an information session for people who may be interested in adopting or fostering or interested in the, the myriad of other ways with that you can also serve in this, whether that's being a court-appointed special advocate, whether it's being a mentor, whether it is coming alongside families who are adoptive uh, and helping them with their plan. 
Uh, and so we went, we attended one of those at our church at the time. And oh my gosh, God spoke very, very clearly to us, you know, that he was calling us to do exactly that. And it seemed daunting at first. Um, anyone who has gone to an information session or gone down this path knows that it is extremely, um, it can be difficult. It can be very tedious. Um, but God often calls us to things that are not easy. That is so true. All right. So um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. And we have a politically geared question for you. Um, this year, uh, political scientists have projected that one in four ballots will be cast by Black Americans. So on the surface, Black voters appear to usually be Democrat. But Pew Research Center has done some investigating and found that those Black Americans who identify as Democrats out of that population, 25% actually identify as conservative in ideology, and then 43% identify as moderate. One group of political scientists say that Black voters are loyal to the Democrat Party in spite of their ideological beliefs because of social pressure from other Black voters. Do you think that that assessment is accurate? Um, I do, and I'm so glad that you brought this up. There are a, so a couple of other reasons why that exists as well, um, but I think it's absolutely ridiculous. As someone who ran as a Republican last year, it shows the failure of the Republican Party to okay. uh, significantly engage in minority communities on a very, very proactive, aggressive, year-long uh, level. And for 70, uh, roughly 75% of African Americans to self-identify as moderate or conservative, mm. moderate or conservative, and yet um, consistently 90% of African Americans vote for Democrat. And so I think there's a couple of things. First of all, is tradition. Over the last uh, three decades, um, the many African Americans have voted that way, and it's been part of uh, our culture, kind of an understanding that the Democratic Party is for us. Um, so that's number one. Number two is the Democratic Party um, exerts and spends a lot of resources and time in our community. There are time, you know, as an African-American, I, I attend meetings with NAACP, with churches, traditional African-American churches, fraternities, sororities, uh, civic groups, and things like that. Uh, at least one out of every three of those meetings that I attend, there is some presence of the Democratic Party. Mm. Right. And so, you know, oftentimes people are going to vote for it, no matter what your color is. You're going to vote for who you believe cares about you and who uh, is engaging you on a very substantive level. And so that's a huge reason why so many African Americans vote that way. And I think for a long time, the Republican Party has uh, figured out a way to win elections um, and to get to 50, uh, 50, you know, plus one. That's the goal. And so if you don't need to go to certain areas of our country uh, to win the White House, you're going to do the least or the least uh, resistant way to do that. And so oftentimes in a lot of our communities that are majority African-American, you have absolutely no presence whatsoever from the Republican Party. And sometimes um, there are uh, there are rumors that are that are there are exaggerations about conservatives that are conveyed in the black community 
and it is always a one-sided conversation. There is no one there to actually say, no, that's, that's actually not true. You know, this is what the other side believes. And so um, I, I kind of look at that, those statistics and point a little bit to the failure of conservatives and the Republican Party, which I've been a part of. And, and I thank, I'm thankful that in Virginia, where I live, um, you're starting to see um, a little bit of a change there. In many states, actually, there's starting to be a change. I know Texas, uh, Georgia, Florida, states that are already very, very ethnically diverse, South Carolina, ethnically diverse, they figured out, you know, they can't win elections unless they engage uh, minority communities. And overall, as a nation, uh, the Republican Party hasn't gotten there yet, sadly. Yeah, that's a huge eye-opener um, and a good lesson for us to learn. Um, I think a lot of times when we're um, forging straight ahead, we team up with our like-minded members and we try to get things done that way. But we also need to be more intentional about reaching populations that we typically don't speak to or engage with. And so I, I think that's um, a, a a change of mindset that we need to have um, in order to bring about good change in our communities. And can I, um, I just want to interrupt really fast. I'm so sorry, but I, I'm wondering, you know, just to, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but you know, the, the Republican party has had staffers hired for these specific, to engage, you know, every race, color, creed in America. I mean, there's somebody specifically for African-American engagement, for Latino engagement, for um, Christian engagement, for Muslim engagement. So, where like what does this look like to really pursue communities that aren't traditionally part of the party without you know tokenism maybe is that what mm -hmm. i want to say yeah. <laughs> can you expound on that a little bit that's a that's a great question i would people i would urge people to look at it the same way that they would want to go after another demographic if we had a veterans for Republican Party or veterans before this uh, particular candidate, no matter who that candidate is, oftentimes there is going to be a very well thought out strategy with, with poll tested messaging and everything. There's gonna be a lot of legwork done uh, for a particular community, uh, whether it's suburban women, soccer moms was the thing at one time, NASCAR dads or whatever. There's a ton of work that goes into messaging for that group and how to reach them and it takes a lot of resources. So yes, hiring a staff person, uh, one, one staff person on your campaign is great. I'm not criticizing that, but we need to do so much more. Mm -hmm. Because on the other side, for mm -hmm. every one staffer the Republican campaign or the RNC may have, the Democrats probably have 10 staffers wow. and probably $2 million. And so with my campaign, uh, we had, uh, we had a lot of success, actually, uh, even though we lost. Um, I, uh, we earned the most amount of uh, votes for any Republican for this district in the district's history from a state, local uh, perspective. Uh, we came to within five points. Uh, we were outspent two to one. My opponent had $1.3 million. And we were going against a lot of uh, national environment headwinds. But the reason why we came as close, we actually outperformed every other Republican because there were other local races. We outperformed everybody. And one of the reasons was is because uh, we had a very aggressive minority outreach program. And not only did we have staff, in fact, we had a team of five people that focused on uh, these neighborhoods. 
We had radio. We had actual radio buys on African-American radio stations. Uh, and we devoted at least 25% uh, of the events that we did and invested in were uh, targeted towards uh, the minority communities in my district. And so um, we, we just got to increase it to scale. So I'm not discouraging, you know, the, having that one staff, that's great. <laughs> but uh, we, we got to do a whole lot more. <laughs> yeah. It's not enough. Right. Um, so during your campaign, did you feel any racial tension or prejudice against you for being a black Republican? Uh, yes, I did. Most of the time it was from people that didn't know me uh, because I've been so involved in the community. Um, I had a lot of connections with people, uh, especially near where I live. The district's pretty big, but where I live, um, I, I would sometimes introduce myself as a candidate but then rather than like getting to policies, I would talk about the mutual uh, connections that we had. Uh, so we might go to the same church. Uh, I'm also a football coach, a little league football coach in this area. So I might bring that up. My kids uh, have attended local schools and I've done a lot of volunteering in there uh, as, a, as a father program, but our school has a fatherhood program called Watchdogs. And so uh, normally I had some kind of connection. Um, that I try to, to reach with the voters that I talk to. And once there was that connection, once there was the credibility, you know, then we could start talking about the issues. And the reaction I normally got from a lot of um, voters, both black and white, who were either independent or Democrat, or normally voted independent or Democrat, was like, you know, I don't, I don't really like the Republican Party, but I like you, you know, I'll give you a chance. And, you know, we signed them up to our list. We did follow up uh with with those individual voters and um and kind of went from there and you know based on our data we, we don't have exact data but we believe that uh we actually won about uh 25 30 percent of the african-american vote in in our community wow. as we close up now this really great discussion that we've had with you what advice would you like to leave with our listeners or some encouragement well, first of all, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be on this podcast. This has been a great conversation. I love the fact that you're wading into many of these, uh, these very, very important topics. I would just encourage the listeners to, uh, to really engage uh, their community in different parts of their community that they wouldn't normally do. Um, yes, uh, we just celebrated Father's Day, and, and that's wonderful, and we spent a lot of time uh, with our own family and things like that. But um, our country is still going through a period of unrest. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot of racial tension right now, uh, and it's just, you know saddening to watch. And the easy thing to do is to take a step back because it's such a noisy and loud environment, and people are they don't want to be shouted down. And sadly, uh, that's what a lot of these conversations have become. But I truly believe that the solutions that we need aren't going to come from Washington, D.C. I don't think they're going to come from a national figure, a political figure. They're going to come from local communities, families, neighborhoods, communities, actually engaging each other on a very real way and listening to what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. And God gave us two ears and one mouth on purpose. I think he wants us to listen more than we speak. And so that would be my big um, uh, advice that I leave with everyone. Uh, I, I'm sure that most of the listeners are conservatives like us, 
And that's something that we need to do if we truly believe that our beliefs and our value systems are good for everyone. We should actually talk to everyone to come up with new ways of how your conservative beliefs will help that particular person in that family. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what my advice would be. That's so good. Well, thank you for being such a wise, um, engaged <laughs> individual and for being willing to talk about these issues. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not easy to talk about. If these things were easy to talk about and to solve, then all of these problems we're seeing would have been solved decades ago. So we sure appreciate you coming on and, and taking the time to be with us, DJ. Yeah, thank you so much, Glenn. It's been, a, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Absolutely. We certainly hope you enjoyed this discussion with DJ. It may interest you to know that Pew Research Center put out a report um, a few years ago called A Tale of Two Fathers, and we really encourage you to read it. We'll be sure to post it on our social media outlets. But the summary is that more fathers are active in their children's lives, but more fathers are also absent. So fathers who live with their children have become more intensely involved in their lives, spending not just time, but quality time with them. However, the share of those fathers who are living with their children has fallen significantly. For those of you who don't live with your children or don't have children, we encourage you that the quality of your relationship with your child or a child who needs a positive male influence matters more than the hours you spend together. You can have far-reaching and life-changing effects on a child's social and emotional well-being and their academic achievements. We intend to spend this week providing you with resources and ideas for ways you can actively engage your children or perhaps a child who needs a positive male model in their life. In short, men, we need you. Yes, and if you are listening to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. Give us a rating and share this episode with your friends. You can find us on all the major platforms and at engagewitheagleforum.com. From your house to the state house to the White House, this is Engaged with Eagle Forum.